Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for people trying to stop working at brick-making speed. Okay, so we're excited uh, today to talk about um, the recent sermon series we just completed on the book of Exodus called Escaping Empire. Uh, I'm Stephen Stacks, and we also at the table have Lauren Eford. Hey, Stephen. And Wes Spears Newsom. Hi, Stephen. Uh, yeah, and we're um, just going to be reflecting back on the sermon series and asking some of the questions that came up as uh, we were working through these passages of Scripture. Um, so the first question I wanted to uh, kick out there to begin with is that um, whenever we talk about uh, the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture um, for an extended period of time, I hear this from our church members. I also get kind of a larger sense from lots of Christians that people are both intrigued but also confused oftentimes by Hebrew Scripture. Um, and since we've spent a lot of time this summer and fall in Genesis and now in Exodus, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, what do, what do we find exciting about uh, preaching from these passages um, and uh, Lauren, especially, why do you think that they're relevant um, for the church today? When I think about the stories of the Old Testament, I always think about uh, children's worship growing up and the felt board that was in the children's worship um, room. And I think about Daniel and the lion's den, all the characters, and uh, just being steeped in those stories um, and learning them and what they might tell us about God. Um, And even though I knew them, I never really thought about those stories and how they interacted with my present-day faith. They always felt very mythical, um, very historical, um, but not really alive. Um, When I became a religion major, I had an Old Testament professor who, um, you know, made me well-versed in historical critical method and uh, deconstructing some of those passages and the stories that I've been told throughout my life. And I always found that interesting and intriguing. Um, you know, was it the Red Sea? Was it the Reed Sea? Um, I found that fascinating, but I still don't think I had an appreciation for how the Old Testament mattered for now. It wasn't really until divinity school when I met Ellen Davis and Anthea Portier Young um, that they really made the Old Testament come alive to me and help me to understand how it might speak into our present context. Um, I'll never forget a sermon that Dr. Portier Young uh, did in our in our chapel where she talked about uh, the prophet Joel crying out on Ash Wednesday and how um, the babies were weeping and how it called us to mourn and to weep um, about the injustices of our day. Um, and so now I, you know, have an easier time trying to uh, imagine how they might become alive um, and how we might be able to identify, for example, like, uh, what the empires are that we are living under. Yeah, there was a song that you sang in Praise the Temple and Worship that talks about escaping Babylon, escaping Egypt, escaping Rome, like all these empires in the Old Testament. And that song is one of the things that calls me back to how um, just rich the Old Testament is with um, powerful stories. And it's, I think the, the richness and depth that's there is part of why the Old Testament's so intimidating to people. Like, 
I I always kind of avoided the Old Testament. Like, you, Lauren did the good thing and, like, dove deeper into it. I, like, avoided it for, like, a few years when, when I was started studying religion um, because it scared me, frankly. Like, there was so much going on, I didn't know, know what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you have to grapple with, like, thousands of years of history rather than, you know, the New Testament time period, which is much more compressed. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I think one of the other things... Uh, that I've always thought that's uh, kind of is also intimidating um, to some degree about uh, grappling with Hebrew scripture is that um, you know oftentimes we we look kind of backwards on the Old Testament quote unquote and uh, make it two dimensional rather than three dimensional or kind of uh, we think of it all as happening at one time rather than with this span of history. Um, and we think of it all in one voice rather than it's kind of polyphonic, uh, you know, theological um, thing going on where it's like all these different people from all these different times and places are writing about their experience with the divine. And there's not a consensus necessarily about everything, you know, in the Hebrew scriptures. They're a collection uh, of all these different kinds of people's experience with God. And there's an evolution over the course um, of those thousands of years about their understanding of God, right? So you, you have to be careful not to, um, when you're looking at these passages, to kind of uh, see them flatly. You're saying your felt board didn't get into the <laughs> complexities <laughs> no, of the theologies no. of the Old Testament. No, no. But the thing about the felt board that I appreciate is that you have to know the story yes. uh, first before you can understand how it informs your life. And I'm not sure that... Uh, everywhere um, the story is taught. And it's one of the things that actually is compelling to me about uh, the Hebrew Scriptures is there's so much more story mm-hmm. there than in the New Testament. The New Testament um, is much more uh, kind of, you have to dig a, a little bit more, like the epistles are very mm-hmm. theological and they're very kind of That's relationally right. focused, but there's not a lot of story there. I mean, the Gospels are story-driven, but um, if you don't have the backdrop of the Hebrew scriptures behind that, then, um, you know, reading the words of Jesus becomes uh, difficult um, to mm-hmm. understand uh, where he's coming from. He's assuming a lot about our, uh, how much we've been steeped in, in the story. In order to really know Jesus, you have to be steeped in the story of the people of Israel, right? right. And the story of liberation, the story of Exodus. Right. I mean, we were talking earlier about um, this kind of, the large-scale story. I mean, Wes has these great posters in the youth hall that uh, go through this large, grain, you know, rough grain story of the story of Scripture that I don't think most people have, you know, at their fingertips and at their disposal. Um, yeah, like two-thirds of that story is in the Old Testament, right? Okay. Right. I mean, seventy-five percent of the of the of mm-hmm. our Bible, right? So, but like the, um, you know, knowing that. The, the, the grand narrative of, of God's interaction with, with the world doesn't start with Jesus, right? Um, but starts with you know, creation and covenant and, uh, you know, exodus and... Kingship. Kingship and exile and, exile and pro- prophet, the prophetic literature. And if you don't have those things in mind when you're reading the words of Jesus, then, you know, you're likely to to misinterpret them if you don't understand that at it you know the foundational story of israel is a story of god as a liberator 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then if you kind of turn around and interpret a passage of Jesus as one that constricts right. and takes away freedom from people, you've, you've placed Jesus' words out of the context of the God of the Exodus, which, which is a problem. You know? All right. So the first sermon in, this, in the series was resisting the master. Um, and Lauren preached about finding creative ways to resist Pharaoh, just like the Hebrew midwives do um, in Exodus 1. Uh, so we read Exodus uh, 1 and 2. Um, where Pharaoh commands uh, uh, the midwives to kill um, the Hebrew boys that are born, and they don't do, they disobey that order and then come to Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh says, Why did you do this? And, and they say, Well, they're too uh, strong. They, they give birth before we can get to them. Um, and so there's this kind of like civil disobedience, this act of civil disobedience, this act of creative resistance. Uh, to the commands of Pharaoh um, that keeps the children of God alive. Um, and in the sermon, Lauren, you challenge the church to find ways in our current world to do the same thing as the Hebrew mid- midwives, to resist the master and to let the children of God live. And here's the specific clip I'm thinking of. We must refuse to participate in systems of oppression. We must resist the master and let the children of God live. When whiteness, like Pharaoh, trembles with fear, resist the master and let the children of God live. When laws, court systems, and judges favor those in power, resist the master and let the children of God live. When people of color continue to get pigeonholed into work all too similar to forced labor and fast track to prison, resist the master and let the children of God live. When hate speech is condoned by the king of our land, resist the master and let the children of God live. When a blind eye is turned to violence because there was a permit, resist the master. And let the children of God live. Okay, now, I imagine you got some pushback for even approaching topics like systemic racism, prison industrial complex, Charlottesville and its aftermath. Um, Those are difficult topics to to talk about uh, in our world today, in our climate. Um, a sentiment that I hear a lot, and I know that all of us have heard from people, especially um, you know, comfortable suburban white Christians, is that nothing we hear from the pulpit should be political. <clears throat> and you know, that statement often confuses me for lots of reasons, not the least of which is because I read the things that Jesus said, and the prophets said, and Paul said, and I scratch my head at the idea that the gospel isn't political. But I also think we, we can't really, we're not really agreeing on what the word political means. Um, so what does that word mean to you all? And what do you see as the role of the church and the clergy in engaging what some people perceive as political issues? Yes, uh, a little bit of pushback, huh? Yeah. Um, and people say that a lot, right? They often say um, politics don't belong in the pulpit. Um, we don't... Um, want to hear about politics in the pulpit. And I do think that people get the word political confused 
um, with the word partisanship, right? So it's confusing to me too, like how is it that you can be Christian um, to read the stories of scripture and to not think that we're called to be involved in the world in any sort of political way um, or reading stories about liberation, the people of Israel being enslaved and um, being released from an empire and uh, we worship a savior who got killed by the head of a state, right? By, um, by King Herod and uh, that is... Uh, <laughs> certainly a political way of being in the world and we walk in the way of Jesus. So um, I don't think that we can not be political. We are political even when we decide not to act, right? Um, in our non-action, we can be political. Um, I certainly try very hard not to be uh, partisan um, from the pulpit because I don't believe that the gospel lies in American politics, right? I don't think that we're gonna get saved in the world through our Republican or our Democratic parties. Um, and I think that Jesus calls us beyond that um, and that we are to think about what does it mean to be faithful and certainly that means being involved in the world in a political way. Yeah, like God help us if it's the American political system that's supposed to save the world. <laughs> there's, there's, I think, because of that, there's a sort of toxicity around the word politics that people hear it and they're like I'm exhausted of that mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about that mm -hmm. I don't come here for that um, when, it, when in fact like politics is something as simple as figuring out how to live together like politics is how we live with our neighbor yeah. and Jesus talks a lot about our neighbor and that's, that's sort of central to what Jesus is doing right I mean I, I think you know we hear a lot from folks who either don't come to church anymore or who have never been interested in, in the church, that one of the, one of the things that's kind of, in all the surveys and all these things that's kind of leveled against the church today is that um, we either don't talk about stuff that matters for people's lives or we talk about it in a toxic way, as, as Wes is referencing, kind of in the way that our culture talks about these things. But, you know, it's just, um, if we can't figure out a way to talk about the issues that have concrete importance for people's lives, then it's going to be really hard for us to figure out how to how to um, communicate the gospel in a compelling way to people. Um, and so I just think it's 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 a strange it's it's something that would that would strike the early church. I think is very confusing. Mm -hmm. The idea that that um, what is that we should not address concrete issues that you know affect our lives together. Because, like, simple stuff is politics, right? right? Like, the amount of money you have to spend on your house, mm -hmm. that's a result of politics. The amount of hours you have to work, and whether you get paid for them well or not, that's politics. Like, mm -hmm. the amount your medication costs, the amount of mental health care that you have access to, the schools your kids go to, like, all of these things are determined in, by and are political conversations and they're political in the sense that they're about the things that matter about how we live together mm. when it matters what it's the main narrative that mm. holds sway right over our lives and for us when we sit around and we spend most of our lives not in church and we spend an hour in worship and we're listening to our favorite cable news channel um, we often hear uh, what we want to hear right we hear mm. things as partisan um, and we don't hear it through the lens of our faith mm. And that cuts so many ways, right? Like, that's not just, like, beating up on one cable news channel. Right. Like, right. we all can so easily fall into this trap of 
conflating our political allegiances and our spiritual allegiances. Mm. And we find ourselves only able to talk in terms of liberal and conservative and Republican and Democrat instead of right and wrong mm. and like Christian and not Christian. Right. And again, we have a language issue, right? So politi if political doesn't mean what people kind of associate it to mean, uh, you know, what, what, does, what does Christian mean in our world today? What does, uh, you know, all these kind of words that we use when we've come to a place where, you know, you can, you can uh, be Christian and be on this end of the spectrum or on this end of the spectrum, there's no kind of core discipleship or core way of life that unites uh, the church, then we kind of, um, we, we may be in danger. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the second sermon in the series was called uh, Approaching Holy Ground, and we had Tim Moore here, uh, and he asked us to consider holy ground as wherever you are confronted with the reality that your life is not what it should be, and you are willing to risk stepping into your calling. Um, this is what Moses did when he approached the burning bush and God transformed him from a shepherd hiding out in Midian to the great liberator and prophet of the people of Israel. Um, and that sermon for me hit on something um, I've been thinking about a lot and struggling with, which is that lots of mainline churches I think have been bad at giving people compelling reasons to follow Jesus. Um, I just don't think that the church in this country has been great in recent years at speaking to the lack of purpose um, that people express uh, and painting a picture of discipleship as a great adventure. Um, what do you guys think about that? I mean, the cozy fireplace in your house is a lot more comfortable than, like, the desert wildfire. <laughs> and, like, it's a lot more, like, tempting to come to a place every week where we can communicate something warm and fuzzy to one another, which, like, isn't bad in and of itself, but if everything that we do is for our own comfort and for our own safety, we're, we're really missing what God is calling us to, I think. Mm -hmm. When I think about all the people who are out in the world who are doing really meaningful things, um, working with nonprofits, trying to spend every day of their lives doing something that makes a difference to somebody else in the world, I often ask myself, what are we doing here? Um, at the corner of Kildare and Maynard in Cary, North Carolina, um, how do we spend our time and our energy? Um, who are we focused on? Um, you know, when people want to know, I can live a very meaningful life that's outside of the bounds of the church because for so often we've been so focused on ourselves and taking care of ourselves and perpetuating our institution um, and not really being out in the community um, and caring for people who need it. Um, I just, you know, have to ask myself, what does that mean? And how do we spend our time as, a, as pastors, um, as a church? Um, and that really matters for whether or not people feel compelled to come be a part of what we're doing. Yeah, I, mean, I was just reading an article recently that talked about striking the balance between uh, external and internal uh, focus as a church. And that, you know, if you line people up in a room and say, where do you think we should be spending our time? You know, all the way to the right is external, all the way to the left is, is internal. And most of the people are going to walk over to the right and walk over to the external focus as what they think is most important. And then you ask people, okay, where do you spend your money and your energy right now as a congregation? And then if people are being honest, they probably have to walk back <laughs> towards the left side of the room. Um, 
And, you know, I, this is not to say that internally building community, community internally is not important because I think this is one of the things that separates the church and its work in the world from the nonprofits you, you mentioned and, and other people's kind of like just giving online to things that matter and doing, doing little things in their lives uh, is that, you know, the community um, around scripture that is beyond class and race and uh, sexual orientation and, uh, you know, this type of community building is vital to our mission in the world. And if we are only externally focused, then we've missed something. But then also, uh, again, we've been so insular for a long time that people don't see, they want that stuff. They want to be out in the community. Um, but oftentimes where we spend our time and energy doesn't necessarily reflect that value. And the world sees that, right? They, they see churches that, that only care about perpetuating their own institution um, and don't, uh, don't live into the, the talk, right? Don't walk the, don't walk the walk. And I also think it matters what you preach every week, right? Mm. Uh, the things that you're willing to talk about or not willing to talk about. And um, if you come to church on Sunday morning and your pastor doesn't really talk about anything that you're actually talking about at your dinner table or at the bar, um, then perhaps it doesn't feel very relevant to your life and not a very compelling story to be a part of because it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and so I think, you know, even through the pulpit, right, we have to uh, talk about things that matter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that we, we kind of give up too easily as the church is that, you know, um, we, uh, we have compelling stories to draw from. Um, you know, Wes and I were talking earlier about how people are captivated by all these stories that our culture produces, uh, like Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, etc., that are stories of adventure and stories of heroism um, that have these kind of larger-than-life characters uh, in them and these larger-than-life lives of, of purpose, right? And people are drawn to those because they want that. They want a life that has meaning and purpose. And I think we've been too easily uh, willing to kind of let, you know, give that up mm-hmm. when we have these stories from uh, our scriptures and from the history of our faith to offer to people and say, look, here is a life of meaning and purpose and value. And, you know, whether you admit it or not, we know because we all have that feeling in the pit of our stomach that, like, we want what we do in the world to matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we have stories like Shipra and Pua, right? right? Acts of civil disobedience and Moses. And the other question for me, too, is, like, you know, what are you doing? Like, this... This bush is burning and it's on fire. Um, and are you trying to to snuff it out? Are you trying to smolder it? Are you trying to put water on it or tame it down? Like, what are we doing with this holy fire? Um, are we letting it burn um, so that it is a compelling story? So that people don't get distracted by the flash of light um, and the wonderful things they can be a part of? Like, are we letting our bush burn? So the next sermon in the series was on. The parting of the Red Sea uh, from Exodus 14 is called Fleeing the Captor. Um, and so I, I know that when we talked about this passage together as, as uh, the ministerial staff, we struggled with it a little bit um, because it's one of those passages where, you know, it's pivotal for our faith. It's pivotal for 
the Jewish faith, it's kind of the foundational story, as we mentioned earlier, of the liberating God. At the same time, when you read this story and it says that God closed the waters in and left all the Egyptians dead on the seashore, I mean, there's all kinds of stories like this um, from not just the book of Exodus, but uh, from our scriptures in general that, uh, that can make people a little uncomfortable, that, that make us uncomfortable, frankly, you know? Um, so how do, we, how do we deal with these stories that are difficult, um, but also really vital for us to grapple with? I think this is always going to be a hard story for me um, to hear um, and to wrestle with, right? The problem of evil, God's role in evil, because yes, it's clear in the Hebrew that Moses stretched out his hand, but God drove back the sea, right? And then God closed back the sea, and God has is acting in this way. Um, I don't think I'll ever not be troubled by that. Um, then as you continue to wrestle with the passage, uh, you know that uh, God is always going to work on the side of justice, right? Um, that God is always going to liberate the oppressed, um, and that God's action is in that, and God's action is not necessarily against the Egyptians, but about the Egyptians who are pursuing injustice, right? Um, and that God's action is about evil and uh, resisting evil. Um, I think it's um, always going to be a hard uh, thing for me to hear. Um, the other thing that's interesting is if you continue to look at the passage, the Egyptians, right, they're the ones who... Uh, turn around and say, whoa, let us flee, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And they sort of speak back to the Israelites, right, to say, this God that, you know, you've been not so sure about, and this leader Moses that you've been not so sure about, it is God who's fighting for you. And they recognize something that sometimes even the Israelites forget. So even in the end, uh, you know, salvation is there for the Egyptians too, right? And they are uh, God wants them to know who Yahweh is as well. I think it's really interesting that the more the more kind of groups of people that I've considered reading this passage with, or like tried to kind of put myself inside their minds, the less troubled I've become with this passage instead of more. Because um, I think there's something really telling about the fact that there's been a lot of kind of hand-wringing over the past century on how could God do this to the Egyptians, and that that hand-wringing has been done by mostly mainline Protestant Christians mm -hmm. who are on average wealthier, on average more educated, on average whiter, on average have greater access to all of the resources of our society, that I, I wonder if there's a, there's a reason that we're the ones asking that question, mm -hmm. uh, myself included, that, that maybe we identify in some way with the Egyptians. Because I think if you, if you don't identify with the Egyptians, this passage is good news. Yeah. Like, it's real good news. But if you're an Egyptian, it's not. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder if there's a reason. That, that we identify with the Egyptians. Yeah, and, and what's, what's important about that identification, right? I mean, even if, even if we are, even if we say, you know what, I think I might be more 
uh, I may be more an Egyptian than, than a Hebrew at this point in time, but that recognition is important, yes. right? It's, it allows you to take a step off your chariot and rethink, rethink what, you're, yes. you know, what, what you're doing. Um, and it's just, you know, the, this is why we talk about repentance, right? Um, I mean, the other, the other thing about this passage that I think we have a hard time or, or that we should take notice of is that, uh, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for the Egyptians to stop what they're doing before it gets to the point where they're dead on the seashore. And the scripture is clear that they are relentless in their pursuit of the Hebrew people, that they will not let them go. They will not give up on doing the violence that they're intending to do. They will not uh, give up on their insatiable kind of greed that is, that is depicted in, in the book of Exodus. And it's like even when Pharaoh like, commits to let the Hebrews leave Egypt, he's actually not committing to setting them free. Mm-hmm. Even after all these plagues and all these things that have happened to try and persuade him to let them go, he's actually only allowing them to take three days in the wilderness. <laughs> and it's only after the three days in the wilderness when he wants them to come back mm-hmm. and they don't come back that he goes out after them. Mm-hmm. And that there is, there is no point where Pharaoh ever says, I'm going to let the Hebrew people go free forever. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, that I think we're hitting on that you addressed, Lauren, in this sermon is that um, our culture has set up tolerance as its ultimate value. And that sometimes that can stand in the way of a pursuit of justice and right. Um, one question I know we get a lot is, if we're an inclusive community of faith, which is our tagline, um, doesn't that mean... Absolutely everybody and everything. I mean, aren't we, aren't we inclusive? Mm. Mm. What do you guys think about that? What, what does that mean to you? What does inclusive mean? And, and like, you know, I want us to be kind of careful in the way we talk about tolerance because on, on one level we need that. But when it becomes the ultimate value, it can become a problem, right? Um. Oh my, yes. It's so funny when sometimes people say, um, well, aren't, if we're an inclusive community of faith, then doesn't that mean that we can include people who um, don't think that it's okay to affirm uh, LGBTQ people? I'm like, well, sure, like it's okay to love them. However, um, we're bringing people into a community of faith. We're all called to be uh, disciples and faithful, and we also need to bring them along. And anybody who stands on the side of hate, right, um, is somebody that we are going to call out because God does take sides, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a center. God uh, does uh, call out evil and wrong. Um, and just because we include everyone uh, doesn't mean that we still don't stand uh, for certain things. Yeah, I saw, um, I was a terrible internet user the other day because I saw the headline to this op ed that said, Should we be intolerant? of intolerance <laughs> and I didn't read it um, <laughs> because on, on the on the face of it it, it, it it was ridiculous to me like of course you shouldn't be intolerant of in, you should be intolerant of intolerance and that's that's why this whole kind of conversation about tolerance falls flat for me mm. is like it doesn't contain within it the ability to say that something is wrong and I think that's important 
Yeah, I mean, one of the phrases that I have heard a lot these days that really gets under my skin right now is, is let's just agree to disagree. Um, and the reason that that bothers me is that um, as, as Christians trying to struggle with what is right and what is good and what is our calling uh, in the world, we can't agree to disagree on some of these issues. We need to hash it out together. We have to be able to have these conversations and to figure out uh, what does it mean that we're to be people of God's liberation in the world? What does it mean um, that, you know, throughout Scripture we have a story of, um, of immigrants, for instance, and, and the constant call from God is to care for immigrants because you were once aliens in Egypt, right? I mean, that, that, that's a foundational calling of our faith. And so, you know, I'm happy... Uh, for us to discuss the specifics of that. But I, I think that we've gotten to a place sometimes in our world and our culture where even Christians can't agree that it's our calling to care for immigrants, for instance. Like, that's basic, and we have to be able to come to that understanding before we can talk about what does that look like publicly, mm-hmm. right? Um, but sometimes I feel like we can't, we can't agree to disagree on whether God calls us to love our enemies, and to care for immigrants and to and to care for the poor, um, those are those are the kind of one hundred and one basics of of what it means to follow God. And so, you know, agreeing to disagree about those things. I mean, this is this is like people kind of hold up compromise as the most. You know, you hear this oftentimes when we're talking about our politics too, and and you know what our Senate does and what our House of Representatives does is, oh, I wish they would just compromise. Um, which on some level is, is valuable sometimes, but then if you think about the Egyptians and the, and the Hebrew people, where's, what's the compromise there between one group of people with all the power and the military might trying to snuff out the other people's existence? Um, what does compromise look like in that scenario? You mean you just can't meet in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, meet in the middle of the, Red, the Red Sea. Red and, sea and all yeah, exactly. Um, you know, ha- Let's just kill half of you, and then we can, you know, agree to disagree and go our separate ways. I mean, sometimes um, compromise puts you still on on the wrong side of God, right? And so we have to be able to, I think, kind of take more definitive stands um, once we hash it out as a community of faith. That's why you need um, the authority of the community to kind of come to these things together, uh, but. Um, you also can't just agree to disagree if you're ever going to um, to be able to take action about the things that that have concrete importance for people's lives in the world. When I think about discipleship too, we're not doing anything compelling by just sitting around tolerating one another, <laughs> right? And Jesus called us to do so much more than that. We were I referenced this in the sermon, but. Um, Tim Condor and Dan Rhodes in their book Organizing Church were saying, you know, it's hard to imagine that the practice of tolerance could resolve issues of urban poverty, institutional racism, sexism, budget crises, abuse or social isolation, let alone foster active dedication needed for strong and healthy communities, and then I think much less actually make the world look like the kingdom of God, right? Right, right. We can't do that by sitting around tolerating one another. Mm. And like we didn't sit around and receive the Ten Commandments that say, God says, you shall have no other gods before me, unless you need to. Like, <laughs> that, that was not how that worked. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there can be a distinction here between, you know, getting back to the inclusive community of faith um, idea. Um, one of the things I don't think people often consider when they come to you and say, aren't we inclusive? Um, is that there are barriers for entry for a lot of people in a space like uh, our church. Um, historical things that keep people like the LGBTQ community from having full access and a seat at the table and people of color from having full access and a seat at the table. And if you are striving to be inclusive of those people as well, then space has to be made sometimes. That, and that kind of, that something has to change in order for those folks to be able to even enter into the conversation and have a voice in that conversation. And so that kind of, that change make some people uncomfortable. People who are comfortable with the way things are are going to be uncomfortable with making space for voices that are different. But that's natural, um, and that's kind of the that's the tension that we need um, to to create a space that is truly inclusive and not just inclusive of people who are white and are Republicans and people who are white and are are Democrats. Right? <laughs> that, those are that's not the only kind of diversity that we'd like to have uh, in our community. You know. When we welcome all people to the communion table, right, we also welcome them uh, to be ordained. Uh, we welcome them to be married. Uh, we welcome them into our community fully as active participants. And we all believe here at Grimma Forest and an open communion table, and that means seeing all children as beloved of God. I think one of the, one of the ways tolerance can hinder our actions is that tolerance as a virtue can so easily like morph into maintaining the status quo. Mm. That like tolerance more than it means acceptance and like welcome tolerance so often means like accommodation of the way things are. Mm -hmm. And Jesus never called people to the way they already were. Right. Um, but that's not, that's not what the whole thing was about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine uh, Jesus calling to, to the disciples and saying, you know, get out of your boat and follow me. And the disciples saying, you know, I agree with you. I think you're good. You know, you're a good person, but I think I'm cool here and you're cool there. And we'll just, you know, we'll agree to disagree. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> what Jesus calls these people to is a, is radical life transform, transformation, right? And if your ultimate value is tolerating everyone where they are in their current mindset and, and life and stance and opinions... Then, we, then nothing's ever going anywhere, right? Because the whole point of valuing tolerance above all else is to keep, it keeps things exactly the way they are currently. No one ever is called to change. No one ever has a transformative experience if tolerance is the only thing you're after. And that's the flip side of communion. Yeah. Like you're talking about communion as the welcome. Communion is also right. the transformation. Yep. We take into ourselves the body and blood of Christ. And changed by it. Yeah. You can't, you don't stay the same. Like, mm -hmm. There are all these debates throughout Christian history about what happens to the bread and the cup. Mm -hmm. There was no debate about what happens to the person who consumes them. Mm -hmm. Like they should be changed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the last sermon in the series, and we kind of hinted at the Ten Commandments a few times already, was called Worshiping God Alone and uh, was about the Ten Commandments. Um, 
And I think for some people, this that sermon may have come out of left field because we've been we've been talking about the liberating God of Exodus. We've we've kind of moved in this progression, um, and then we have a sermon, and you ended up honing in on Sabbath. Um, so that connection might not be totally clear to everybody, but I wanted to tease out um, what is the connection between a sermon on Sabbath and the other sermons in this series, which seem to focus more on freedom and justice. Sabbath is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, um, and I think it really uh, draws together uh, both the first three and the last six, right? So the first six are about God and how we relate to God. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other idols. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Um, and the other six are all about how we live together in community and what our relationship is like with other people. And I think that we can't imagine either one of those things rightly unless we actually obey Sabbath, right? We can imagine a world in which um, we are not what we produce, we're not our work, um, and that we are not, everything's not up to us, right? That we are not God, um, that God is our provider, that we can live by God's generosity um, and extend that same generosity to others. So I think that, you know, end up honing it on Sabbath because it's the one that teaches us how to do all of those things, how to relate both to God and to our community. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, you think about, I had a lot of questions after um, resisting the master and fleeing the captor. Um, okay, now tell us what we should do. Or what was your purpose in preaching that sermon? Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly did you want to get out of it? Or what did you want us to get out of it? Um and, you know, the answer, um, yes, like to be involved actively in our world in resisting the master and helping people flee the captor, but you can't do that unless you can imagine a world in which that's possible, right? So perhaps our action um, is to, to rest and to know who God is um, so that we can imagine a world where none of us are enslaved um, by a pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me about Sabbath every time um, I think about it, um, and there's a problem right there, thinking about it rather than doing it, but um, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that you are literally enacting the thing once a week that you hope for the whole world to be true 24-7, right? Mm-hmm. It's, that's what's so powerful about it, is that you, you kind of practice a world in which all people are equal as children of God, in which all people are seen not for what they can produce, but for who they are, in which all people are allowed to to be in relationship with each other and with God. Um, You create the world you're trying. You create for one day the world you're hoping will be created by God for everyone all the time. recognizing that we're not there yet, right? Already, but not yet, kind of, the, the tension is there. But again, like you're saying, it stokes the imagination of what is possible. If you can practice it one day, you can envision it seven days, right? Yeah, and Sabbath is one of those things that every time I've talked about Sabbath to anyone, the response is always sometimes to the effect of, oh, well, I've got a lot of work to do to get there. You know, it's a failure to realize that the Sabbath is a gift, mm. that the connection between freedom and justice and Sabbath is that Sabbath is freedom and Sabbath is justice. Mm. And we, we know that 
because not everybody can take Sabbath if they wanted to take it. Mm -hmm. That we can't talk about Sabbath in terms of obligation because it's not an obligation that we can ask mm -hmm. of everyone who would want it. That it's a gift that should come from God and it's a gift that's actively taken away by some of the ways that our world works today. Like, I think it's really telling that the only industry that really has Sabbath in the United States is the bank. <laughs> like, the one place you can't go on the weekend is the bank. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just, that's so uniquely American, right? That we'll let our money rest, mm. but we won't let our bodies rest. Mm. And who, who matters more to us as a society? Yes. Um, money or people, right? <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, the thing about this, that well, to bring this full circle and, and kind of tie it back into the conversation about what politics means, um, if, you, if we were to actually try and institute a Sabbath practice, imagine if every church in the country decided to do this. Um, it would very quickly reveal for us the places of injustice in our economy that don't allow this to happen, right? So the point of it is to... Is, and it spells out everybody who should be given Sabbath, all the way down to, in that time and place, the male and female slaves, the animals themselves, everyone, the land, everyone should be given Sabbath. So if we try to do that in our current economic system, what would happen if we tried to give every single person a one day out of seven to rest? I think we would quickly find that our, you know, our system of production and consumption is based upon not being able to do this. Mm. not allowing all people the ability mm. to rest as a child of God um, but it's a system that is more in line with Pharaoh than it is with the God of Sabbath it's more in line with uh, power that insists on constant production make more bricks make more bricks, brick making speed as you said mm -hmm. in your sermon right um, and and we, as the church in this country, should see that as a problem. Mm -hmm. That we live in a society that is more in line with Pharaoh's model of humanity than it is with God's. Mm -hmm. And how we work that out together is political. Mm -hmm. But it's the kind of politics that can get beyond partisanship uh, if we're able to use our story, our scriptural story, and, and our, our kind of um, values as Christians to form and shape the way we engage uh, in a world that's like that. When you were saying that, you know, people say, oh, I have a lot of work to do if I'm going to practice Sabbath. Well, they don't have a lot of work to do, but they do have some decisions to make, right? <laughs> and some things to let go of um, and some ways in which they're going to decide not to participate in this system that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we have, you know, sports all weekend long, all Sunday long, um, and in order to say that we're not going to participate in that system, right, um, we are going to be doing things that are going to cause us to have lots of interesting conversations with our neighbors and our friends and our children's friends. And, um, and our kids themselves. And our kids themselves, yes. Well, and I think, too, like, um, you know, being a mom of a small child, like, and you already start to feel guilt around society around you of providing your child with certain experiences, right? So we're like, even when we have leisure time, right? It often turns into just filling our tank um, up with all the activity um, that we can possibly have, right? 
Um, in some ways, you're like not a good parent if you don't allow your child to experience some things and learn things. And um, then they get into the world of sports, and uh, you have to make decisions then about how you spend your time, right? And those, it would require a lot of resistance um, to the current system that we live in, um, even at that level, right? About how we participate in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that reveals something like that reflection reveals something fundamental about the political activity as we're talking about it, that it's easier to think about the political struggle as a struggle between political parties, as a struggle between politicians, mm-hmm. all that, but really the, the struggle that we're talking about is far more fundamental. Uh, Paul says in the New Testament that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the principalities and powers of this world. And it's those principalities and powers, those ideologies of Pharaoh that force us to make these kind of decisions about rest and work and all of that. That it's it's not just about what's happening in Washington. It is about that, but it's also about what's happening in our hearts and in our own individual lives and how work and rest are playing themselves out in that. Yeah, I mean, and to bring it back around to um, the first sermon uh, in the series and, and that first question I asked, the general question about the relevance of these stories in our lives today, I mean, I think a lot of people get um, uh, kind of shut down as soon as you kind of take it into the present day. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there was a line in... in I mean, it's scary. Yeah, there was a line in, in Resisting the Master where you said when the pharaoh or the king of our land um, condones hate speech, resist the master, right? Um, And just kind of putting your finger on an instance of our current uh, president embodying the ethic of pharaoh Mm -hmm. was, was too much for some folks. But I think, you know, what's important to remember there and keeping Paul in mind and and some, some of the other reflections we have is that this is not about any one person. Um, this is about uh, two different ways of being human, different ways of uh, different systems that, that push people into, into different kinds of lives, right? And that anybody can embody an ethic that forces people to work uh, and doesn't acknowledge them as children of God. So anybody can embody Pharaoh in our world today and anybody can live into God's uh, freedom in our world today and we have to be able to kind of um, have the conversation where we decide where is Pharaoh mm-hmm. um, where, where, what, is, what is Egypt and what is uh, you know what is the mountain of God and where, you know, where are we headed um, and how do these things because you know, scripture is set up to understand these things as continuing. You know, we have uh, different political regimes, but all kind of represent this resistance to the freedom of God, from Egypt to Babylon to Rome, um, and we have to kind of be able to to acknowledge that before we can call everyone out of it. Right. Right. When resisting the master was two weeks after Charlottesville, right? Mm. So if there's ever a time to think about really needing to name Pharaoh, right? Um, it's certainly then. And, you know, I often think about, um, you know, being a white clergy and 
uh, thinking about how God does take sides, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and one of my hopes and prayers for my life is that I'm not going to end up on the wrong side um, of evil, of racism, um, of hate. Um, and if there was, you know, going back to the compelling question, right? Um, in order to be compelling, we have to be talking about things that matter. We have to be willing to call things out um, that are wrong. Yeah, I mean, think, just the civil rights movement is such a rich example of, I think, faith in public life uh, in our country and what it looks like. Um, that imagine, I mean, if people associated Christianity with Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. right, and Rosa Parks, like that's what Christianity looks like, rather than the associations that it has kind of come to now. Um, what kind of uh, you know, world would be, would the world be different, right? Um, if that was our picture of what a compelling life of discipleship, Christian discipleship looked like. So I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I, every time I read a letter from Birmingham jail, I think, you know, if I don't do anything else as a minister, just don't, don't, don't make me one of these white clergy that, that King is, is writing about. Um, but, but let me be one of those, you know, people who, who stood stood beside the demonstrators in the civil rights movement and was was on God's side? Right, and in order to do that, we have to be able to to read the present through the lens of Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through the lens of the story of liberation, or either we're going to be one of those people who would have not agreed with what Rosa Parks did, right? It's so easy to romanticize it and to look back and to know what was right and wrong, and it's somehow we think it's fuzzy uh, in the present to decide what's right and wrong. But I think it can also be pretty clear. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, it, one of the most powerful things about the civil rights movement and the abolitionist movement, and you know, is how deeply they drew from the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. These are people who very clearly were steeped and captured by this story, this foundational story of our faith. And so I think called Harriet Tubman, old Moses. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So to kind of this is why these examples from the civil rights movement and from uh, abolitionist period kept coming up in these sermons is that they, those people themselves drew from this story constantly Um, and so they were certainly not interpreting the actions of Jesus outside of the context of this story and so I think it's, it's vital for us to figure out how to continue allowing ourselves to be formed and shaped by the Exodus story and we've got to realize that that's not always going to be clean and popular either. Mm. We like to think about Martin Luther King as a popular figure now, but he was not a popular figure no. when he was alive. And in none of these figures in the biblical story either were particularly well-liked mm. for the things that God was asking them to do. And I think that the, um, when we listen to the burning bush, when we listen to God's call, we have to know that that's not going to be a call to a whole lot of comfort in a whole lot of safety, that that's going to be a call to something that will be exhilarating and exciting and adventurous, um, but never safe. Mm. All right. Sounds like a good place to end. <laughs> this has been Greenwood Forest. See you next time.
Well, if you stuck around after the podcast, we have a real treat for you. Here is some early audio of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments that was just recently uncovered by archaeologists. Enjoy. Moses went to the mountain, and God spoke unto him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, I finished, forget it. Oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15. Ten. Ten commandments for all to obey. <laughs> <laughs> 